really quick. It just makes you feel a little uncomfortable. As parents, we watch this on a daily basis, don't we, with our kids? Our kids are constantly doing this type of interaction, insulting one another. You hurt me, I hurt you. You call me a name, I'm going to call you another name that's a little bit worse. This type of interaction is actually the default interaction of humanity. And it is a sign of immaturity. As parents, we, we pray and we hope and we raise our kids so that they mature out of this type of interaction. But unfortunately, a lot of adults still live like this. A lot of adults still interact in a way that some people call tit for tat. Others might call it quid pro quo. Quid, quid pro quo. Yet others call it the wooden rule. The wooden rule goes something like this, or ethicists, I should say, call it the wooden rule. It goes something like this. Do unto others as they do to you. Have you heard that one before? Do unto others as they do to you. So, essentially, treat people how they treat you. We see this all the time. He cut me off, so I'm going to tailgate him. She called me a name, so I called her dumb. He hit me, so I punched him. And it goes on and on and on. They treated me this way, so I'm going to turn right back around, and I'm going to treat them the same way. And we see this as the default. Now, this isn't the only rule ethicists have come up with. They've also developed what they sometimes call the silver rule. Has anyone heard the silver, silver rule before? Uh, it, one of the first places we find the silver rule is actually in Judea before Jesus. It's two rabbis, Hillel and Shema. We've talked a little bit about them before in this series. That they were, there was an ongoing debate between Hillel and Shemal to, to kind of a rivalry between these two rabbis. And we're not, exactly how, we're not exactly sure how this story plays out, but it kind of goes like this. There's a Gentile visiting Israel, and he want, he's thinking about converting. So he first goes to Shema, and he says, if I can summarize the entire, or sorry, if you can summarize the entire Torah while I stand on one foot, I will convert. Well, Shema is so angry that the man would reduce such great teaching the very word of God, into something that could be recited so easily that he picks up a stick and starts to beat the man till he runs away. So the man goes to Hillel, says the same thing. And Hillel says, this is the summary. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is the commentary thereof. Go and learn it. So that sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. It's very similar with what we call the golden rule. But there are a few differences between the golden rule and the silver rule. Whereas the wooden rule was treat others how you've been treated, this one is, is a little bit more passive. It's, it's with a don't. What you consider hateful, don't do to others. Can you ignore them? Yeah. Do you have to love them? Not really. Can you get away with some injustices? Oh, yeah. 
if you know how to just ignore people, right? But at least it's not the wooden rule, right? So it's like a step above the wooden rule. But it's still not a full maturity. And that's what we find in what we call the golden rule. And that's what we'll talk about today as we continue our series following a study through the Sermon on the Mount. So it's going to be quick, children. Don't give me... I, I, I uh, ran through this just for my kids. I told them I'd be under 20 minutes. So here we go. We're going to fly through this section on the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in chapter 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son, has, son asks for him for bread will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophet. So there we are, the the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. But, but it's connected in a whole series. Oftentimes we, we recite this rule and we kind of disconnect it from the context. There's an entire context here. So let's dive in, starting in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So we've got verse 7 has three commands. To ask, to seek, to knock. Each one of these commands is telling us to pursue God. We can pursue God in a few different ways. We can pursue him through prayer. We can pursue him through scripture, reading it, memorizing it, submitting to it. And we can also pursue him through praise, through singing corporately together, or maybe on your own. Singing praises to God is another way to pursue him. Now the force of each of these commands should actually make us translate it, keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking. Essentially, Jesus is saying, don't give up. It's not a one and done kind of a deal. But keep on pursuing God. Keep praying. Keep reading and memorizing the word. Keep reminding yourselves of the truth found in the word. And keep on praising God. Now, each one of these commands come with a promise found in verse 8, or sorry, uh, found in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. So if you ask, it will be given. If you seek, you will find. If you knock, he will answer. When I hear, hear knock, and it will be opened, I can't help but to think of my kids pounding on my door at, in the middle of the night. For whatever reason, you know, parents, you've experienced this, Your kid wakes up for some reason, and they want you. And sometimes they just want to let you know that they're awake. So they pound on the door, and what are you going to do as a parent? You're not going to just sit there and try to just sleep it off, right? Just If I just keep sleeping, they will quit knocking. No, you go and you answer. And that's kind of the idea here, right? That you keep on knocking and that he will answer. So if we go back to our model prayer, we get this idea of bending our will to God's will or transforming what we want to what 
what he wants. And so I think the idea here is as we pursue God, as we keep on asking, as we keep on seeking, as we keep on knocking, as we keep on pursuing him, he changes us and aligns us with him. So he gives, he uncovers, he answers, but not always in the way that we expect. So many people pursue God expecting him to bend to our will. And then we're mad when we don't get the answer that we want. But that's not why we should pursue God in the first place. The reason why we pursue God is so that we bend our will to his. And as we pursue him with that expectation, then he begins to change our hearts and he bends our will to his will. So as we pursue, as we seek, as we ask, as we knock, he answers by changing our heart. And so that reveals that God listens, God is good, and God cares. Jesus gives us an illustration to help us understand found in verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask of him. So the two questions found in verses 9 and 10 use a construction in Greek that expects a negative answer. No, of course no parent would do this. If your child asks for for food, you're not going to give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, you're not going to give him a serpent. You're not going to take you're not going to give your child bad things when your child is asking for just the bare essentials for life, right? Of course not. That's an easy that's an easy answer to see. So it's it's kind of this uh this illustration that just seems absurd to the audience. It almost seems comical. And then Jesus gives us this if-then statement. So you've got this absurd absurd statement followed by an if-then. If you then, you who are evil, know how to give good gifts. And we might stop for a second because you might think, well, wait a second, I'm not actually evil. I take care of my family. The Greek word translated evil here is panoros, and it can be translated as diseased, sick, morally corrupt, or it can be translated as evil. In the context, the idea is that there is a moral sickness. So you may not be outright evil, especially if you can uh, like compare yourself with a serial killer, or Hitler's an ap- a popular one, right? I'm no Hitler, so I'm not evil. If that's your standard of evil, your standard of evil, uh, it, it's, it's a little ridiculous. <laughs> God's standard of evil is different from your standard of evil because we're constantly in a comparison game. I'm not as wicked as that person, so I'm really not evil. But what Jesus is saying here is that you are morally corrupt. You're not perfectly holy. You're not perfectly just. You're not perfectly righteous. You're morally corrupt. Even if you say, I'm a pretty good person, that may be true if you compare yourself to someone else, but you can't stand up to God's holy standard. 
Every single one of us has sinned. Every single one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has fallen short of God's standard. And every single one of us has at some point in our lives rebelled against God. We have shaken our fist at God and said, forget you, God. I want to do things my way. And it might be even an insignificant thing or something that you picture as insignificant. But you want to do things your way and not God's way. And as a result, you have been separated from the perfect relationship of God that you could have had. You have been separated from God. You have fallen. You have fallen short of the standards. And therefore, you are morally corrupt. And as a result of separation from God, we become slaves to sin. We were created to worship something. Worship doesn't just mean singing praises. Worship means submission to. We oftentimes don't like that word submission, but we were created to submit to something greater than us. And if we live in rebellion against the creator, we will end up submitting to something else and that something else is sin. So although it's an ins- it seems like it's an insignificant little thing that you have rebelled against God for and you th- might even think that you can control that thing, in the end, sin will be your master. In the end, you will be a slave to sin. So you might even have everything else in your life pretty well organized. So well organized that you wouldn't call yourself evil, not like Hitler. But in the end, you are still morally corrupt and a slave to sin. You can never control your sin. You might convince yourself you can, but you never actually can. In the end, sin will be your master. Unless you turn towards God. So we are slaves to sin and dead without hope of being freed from sin, except God being such a great God and being a God who loves you with such a great love came and paid the price for our sin. He came and he was separated from God so that you could be reconciled back to him. And the only way to gain this freedom from sin is by putting your faith and trust in Christ. And once you do that, upon that decision, he makes you alive together with him. He declares you holy, just, pure, washed, righteous, and no longer a slave to sin. But every single one of us has had a moral failure. So Jesus is saying, if you, who has moral failures, know how to give good gifts... And then we get to the other side of the then-if-then statement, right? How much more does your Heavenly Father know how to give good gifts? Now notice, it's not just, shouldn't God be able to do the same? If you who are evil, who are morally corrupt, can give good gifts, shouldn't God be able to do the same? It's not just that. And it's not just more. If you who are morally corrupt know how to give good gifts, shouldn't God give more? It's actually, but God gives much more. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God's good gifts are better than anything you can receive from another human. Thanksgiving is over. Christmas is coming. 
I know there's some kids excited. Do we have some presents under the tree yet? Some, some, some kids. All right. But those gifts, no matter how great of a Christmas present you receive this year, it pales in comparison to God's good gifts. But God's good gifts can sometimes be difficult to measure because oftentimes they're not material. On Christmas, you can measure your gifts, right? And you, you can even place a value on them because we know how much they cost. So you can place a whole value system on your gifts. But God's gifts are different. They don't look the same. In fact, sometimes we can feel the pain of life And we know that we can't change our circumstances, so we might begin to think that God doesn't give good gifts. I think about the persecuted church that we've been praying for all month long. I think about the difficulty it must be for those who are living pretty comfortable lives, who are part of a community, part of a family. Then they put their faith in Jesus, and all of a sudden, life gets very difficult. Because they've put their faith in Jesus, all of a sudden they get put out from the community. They get put out from the family. They're cut off. How easy would it be to walk away from the faith and get that comfortable life back? One of the first videos we watched was about Christians in Pakistan who were condemned to work the worst jobs with no hope of ever working their way up. There was a sewage worker who actually had to get into the sewage lines and you saw the the sewage all over his body. And he knew that there was no way, unless he denied Christ, there was no way he could get a better job. That was his life. And yet, he stayed in the faith because he knew that living with Jesus was better than living a comfortable life. So there are those who remain faithful, who stay the course because a difficult life with Jesus is better than a comfortable life without him. One of the main themes of the letter from Peter, 1 Peter, is that character is built through suffering. As we suffer, God uses that suffering to build character in us, to make us better people. So actually, this is what's crazy, is actually suffering is part of a gift that God is giving us. And that that kind of can blow our mind because as we suffer and we turn towards God, he's actually building our character. He's actually making us better. There's this amazing book called The Gift of Pain. And it was a doctor that was working with leprosy patients. Now, a lot of us understand leprosy as a skin disease, but it's actually a nerve disease. And what happens with leprosy patients is because their nervous system is all out of whack, they don't have a sense of pain. So they might touch boiling water and not even move their hand. Whereas you and I would pull our hands back, their hand stays on. One of the most gruesome tales, because they started doing this like management system so that they could actually control how like not to lose limbs. They would control uh, whether or not they could get infections in their cuts because they wouldn't even notice that they were cut. So they started doing this whole management system, but all these people started, or these leprosy patients were still losing fingers. And they couldn't figure out why are these 
people losing finger. All day long, we manage their, we manage their systems. We, we, look, we, we look all over for cuts. We know that they're not getting infections. How come they're still losing fingers? So they, they decided at, uh, uh, that they were going to have somebody like uh, uh, get up in a corner of their room and just watch them sleep. And what they discovered was, this was in India, the houses weren't built very tight. And what they discovered is, as these leprosy patients were sleeping, rats would sneak in. And because they couldn't feel anything, the rats would crawl all over them. It wouldn't wake them up. You and I would get woken up. And the rat would figure out that they couldn't feel as they nibbled on them. And the rat would eat their fingers. The gift of pain. Oftentimes we don't think of pain as a gift. And yet, it is one of God's good gifts. Without pain, we wouldn't realize that there is something wrong. And the same goes for emotional pain. C.S. Lewis was quoted as saying, pain is like a megaphone that God is using to reach the world. That's not a direct quote, but it's something similar to that, right? Emotional pain is actually a gift from God. As Even though we struggle through it and it hurts, no one wants to feel pain. And yet that is God calling out to us in this broken and hurt world. So as we suffer, God is using it to build us more and more into the people he created us to be. And that would not happen without suffering. Because suffering causes us to turn towards him. Without suffering, we would remain independent from God. We would stay stuck in our rebellion against God. And therefore slaves to sin. So you might not be persecuted like the believers around the world. But I bet you have suffered. Maybe you come from a broken home. Maybe someone you loved died. Maybe someone you loved abandoned you. Maybe you suffer from a sickness or an illness that can't be cured. And you've yelled out to God and you've begged Him for a cure. Or maybe it's a Maybe it's a family member. And you've watched this family member in pain. And you've yelled out to God for your cure. And you've begged Him for a cure. But the thing is, we beg for cures because we want to be comfortable. I don't want to deal with this anymore, God. So please, just... Take the pain away. Instead of begging for comfort from God, I would encourage you. And now it is okay to ask for a cure. I'm not saying don't ask for a cure, but I would encourage you to start looking for ways that God is giving you a gift in the midst of the suffering. Ways that God is comforting you in the midst of the suffering. Ways that God is actually growing you and changing you spiritually and building character in you in the midst of the suffering.
So God, who is good, knows how to give good gifts. I like the way one commentator puts it. He says, what is fundamentally at stake is man's picture of God. God must not be thought of as a reluctant stranger who can be cajoled or bullied into bestowing his gifts. As a malicious tyrant who takes vicious glee in the tricks he plays. Or even as an indulgent grandfather who provides everything requested from him. He is the heavenly father, the God of the kingdom who is graciously and willingly bestows the good gifts of the kingdom in answer to prayer. The good gifts of the kingdom are not material. The good gifts of the kingdom are spiritual. And it is God growing you all the more into the person He created you to be. And then Jesus gives us, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So before we get into the whole reason why it's called the golden rule, it's important to recognize this so here, or some of your translations will say, therefore, and this this un in the Greek connects the entire body of the sermon with this thought. So essentially, Jesus just gave the greatest teaching on the Old Testament. And now he is summarizing the entire Old Testament with this statement. It's kind of like Hillel summarizes the entire Torah. Except for Jesus puts a different spin on it. And I would say a greater level of maturity on it. So he condenses 39 books of our Bible into 15 words, or maybe 14 if you have the ESV translation. If we get anything from this teaching... From the Sermon on the Mount, this is it. This is the ethical standard Jesus is setting forth for people. And if we go all the way back to chapter 5, verse 20, this is the standard. So if you remember chapter 5, verse 20, he says, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he is giving this as the standard. The problem with the Pharisees is they always had developed more rules and they desired righteousness. They had a zeal for righteousness to do what is right. In fact, so much zeal that they wanted to be able to explain everything in the Torah. And so they'd continue to add more and more and more rules because they wanted to ensure that they were righteous. And Jesus takes all of this And he says, no, this is the standard. It's not about jumping through all of the hoops. It's not about following more rules. So he gives us this standard. And this forms what theologians would call an inclusio with uh, chapter 5, verse 17. And that's kind of like a sort of a bracketing technique. So most theologians would have an intro, chapter 5, verse 1 through 17. Then the body of the sermon, the exposition of the Old Testament, chapter 5, verse 17, through chapter 7, verse 12. And then next week we'll get into the conclusion. But this statement sums up the entire body of the sermon. Now it doesn't replace the Old Testament, but it reveals that this is the goal of the Old Testament that the Bible, that the very Word of God would transform us, that it would change our heart so that we could live this golden rule out. Now, we've often heard it called the golden rule. Traditionally, it comes from the Roman Empire Emperor Alexander Severus, who, though not a Christian, was so impressed by this teaching 
that he had it inscribed in gold on the wall of his chamber. So that's why it's called the Golden Rule. Now, the Golden Rule does not need a lot of exegesis or a lot of explaining. It is not a complicated set of rules and more rules. And that is the beauty of Jesus' teaching here. It is simply enough that ev- or is simple enough that every child in here can understand the golden rule. Before you interact with someone, ask yourself, how would I want to be treated? Then treat the other person in such a manner. Would I like to be called a name? No, even though this person called me a name? I would I didn't like that. So I'm not going to put I'm not going to call them a name back. Did I like that that person cut me off? Do I like to be tailgated? No. I'm not going to cut them off and I'm not going to tailgate them. Could you imagine how much better our community would be? How much more peaceful? How we would actually have shalom? How we would thrive if everyone in our community lived by this principle? So this is a basic principle that should guide our behavior. It's not reactive like the wooden rule, and it's not passive like the silver rule. But it's actively coming up with ways to treat others. This means your siblings. This means your children. This also means the stranger in the parking lot, even as they yell at you. Now, if you're anything like me, this can actually kind of start to wear you out a little bit. I mean, who has the energy or the emotional capacity to constantly be putting other people, other people's needs before my own? I have a hard time treating those I love the way I want to be treated, let alone the guy in the parking lot who is yelling at me. That happened this week, so that's why it's an example. And here's the rub. I think the part of the golden rule that Emperor Severus didn't understand, the only way to actually live this out is by submitting our will to God. The only way we can actually live this out is by letting the Holy Spirit lead us If you're trying to live this out without being changed by God, you will collapse out of exhaustion. You can't do it. We just can't do it. No matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we try, without being changed by God, the golden rule will be just another rule to weigh us down. We are going to live this summary of the Old Testament out. If we're really going to live the, old, the principle of treat others the way you want to be treated out, we must first ask, we must seek, and we must knock. And as we become more focused on God, submitting our will to His, as we die to ourselves, God equips us to look at the guy who's yelling at you in the parking lot and say, I hope you have a nice day, sir. To put others' needs before our own. God will equip you to do it. Dear Lord, we thank you so much.
that you didn't just come with a bunch of new rules and regulations and things that weigh us down, but that you offer us grace and peace. And we recognize that we are rebellious against you. We rebel in so many ways, and yet you came and you paid the price for that rebellion. And that as we submit ourselves to you, you change our hearts, you enable us, and you equip us to live out the golden rule. And we pray as believers that as you continue to mature us in the faith, you would mature us beyond the wooden rule or the silver rule, that we would live out the golden rule. In your name we pray, amen.